am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs for Myriad Oncology. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have Dr. Holly Peterson. She is the Director of the Medical Breast Services in the Breast Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, she's also an Associate Professor at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Peterson. Thank you so much, Dr. Slavin. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to talk with you today. Yeah, so we've known each other for some time. I think I first met you, it was in our City of Hope course when I was uh, at my former institution. And uh, if I remember, we might have even taken it at the same time. I think it was 2014. I could be wrong there. I don't think that I remember meeting you there, but I don't know. I, 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 mine was a bit later. Yeah, maybe it was later. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, a good course uh, for genetics providers that are uh, trying to learn a little something extra in the hereditary cancer genetics world. Uh, excellent, excellent course. course. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Yeah. So, uh, well, Dr. Peterson, if you want, um, you know, I'd love uh, for the audience just, uh, you know, tell them a little bit about yourself sure. um, and your practice and, you know, kind of what your research interests are. Sure. So I'm actually a board certified internist by training and gravitated towards women's health and ended up focusing purely on breast in 1997 when, of course, BRCA1 and BRCA2 were emerging on the scene. I, my focus in my practice is on personalized risk stratification and management. I, I run a hereditary high-risk clinic for genetic mutation patients, and I also manage a team. Uh, medical breast is, is a term that we, that we use here for anything non-surgical. We do diagnostics, risk management, risk assessment, and long-term survivorship care. In addition to the City of Hope course, I also did a clinical fellowship with Dr. Karis Eng in 2008, focusing on genetics, and, and that's really my area of interest. Mm -hmm. In terms of, of research, uh, some of it's, of course, been curtailed by COVID. You know, we, yeah. we work with Dr. Eng in studies involving the microbiome of the breast tissue, uh, but that's on hold. One of the most recent things that I did, we looked back at our BRCA carriers and lapses in screening due to pregnancy and lactation. You know, there are really no national guidelines yeah. in place, and this is the time when women tend to have children and breastfeed, and, mm -hmm. and you know, pregnancy-associated breast cancer is, is not uncommon in, in those patients. Yeah, um, so we sort of wanted to changes. see, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so that, that was very interesting. Um, we'll be part of the upcoming SWOG prevention study on chemo prevention. And when oh, COVID calms down, we, we also focus on community outreach, uh, identifying BRCA carriers, as we have a very large Ashkenazi community in Cleveland. Oh, great. Is the, is the chemo prevention trial uh, using low-dose tamoxifen? I'm not... So aware. it's really a decision support tool comparing ordinary counseling to a computerized decision support aid. Oh, okay. um, and it's uh, site-specific. So there are sites that have the, the computerized 
decision support tool in sites that are controls to see whether that can help improve the uptake. <laughs> we can only improve mm -hmm. the uptake of yeah. prevention. If, in for this the audience country. out there, uh, the, <laughs> it's a very low percentage of uh, the U.S. population <laughs> that uh, try to do chemo prevention to reduce the risk of breast cancer. So you can only improve on the, the very low numbers. I don't know what right. they are, but uh, I thought I think it's like it's one percent or something. Yeah, it's like two. Yeah, one to two percent yeah. of those women who could potentially benefit <clears throat> actually take it. You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and usually you take a medication like tamoxifen uh, or tamoxifen or something of the sort, and um, uh, it's thought to just reduce the uh, estrogen stimulation on the breast tissue and ultimately, ideally, reduce your risk of breast cancer. And this has been studied for, I don't know, probably 15 years at least. Well, longer than that. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, yeah. the, Star trial. the P1 trial started, I think, in 1992, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, and uh, so it's, it's old news, but still difficult yeah. to convince patients of. Yeah, some of the medications have a lot of side effects, but uh, yeah, we're working towards hopefully uh, lower doses and yeah, ultimately in the future, different medications that will hopefully have very few side effects would be good. Yeah. So great. Yeah. So I, um, you know, really when I was thinking about, uh, you know, having you on for the podcast, it was uh, because we were recently having some discussions around uh, polygenic risk scoring. And we haven't covered this topic yet uh, on the podcast. And uh, just for the, the audience, polygenic risk scoring is really a, a rapidly emerging uh, type of biomarker uh, used to understand people's risk for really anything, um, you know, really any hereditary or potentially hereditary disorder. It's being used, um, you know, a lot in the cancer world, cardiovascular world, um, you know, everything from Crohn's disease to, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, you know, ev everything in between. So the way it works is you look at multiple uh, different markers, genomic markers, some might call them single nucleotide polymorphisms. Uh, however, a lot of times they're not all single nucleotide polymorphisms. It's kind of a nuanced discussion. Sometimes they're, they're actual uh, disease associated variants in our genome. Uh, and you uh, look at all these uh, markers and you kind of add them up essentially as uh, each marker individually by itself really doesn't have a massive influence on risk. Uh, but if you actually add all these markers up, you can start really quantifying people's risk pretty well. And this has been a field that's really emerged. Uh, and I've had the pleasure personally of really watching it emerge since I did a postdoc in uh, genetic epidemiology and focused on genome-wide association studies for cardiovascular disease. Um, and at the time, we were really focused on single SNPs. I had a paper way back when, as uh, part of my postdoc, that we looked at two uh, SNPs at one time. And that was kind of like the whole emergence of, you know, looking at multiple SNPs. And then quickly, people started adding more and more SNPs together with complex mathematical algorithms. And uh, we're still, I would say, emerging that field. But there's been commercial testing now since 2017 for looking at polygenic risk scores. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, really interesting field. So yeah, I just, I know you have a lot of experience with polygenic risk scores. You use them uh, in your clinic. And I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts on uh, how they are for a precision medicine tool. Yeah, I mean, it's such an exciting time. You know, in, in 2020, we've really done a pretty good job of identifying probably most of the 
highly penetrant or high risk genes that predispose to breast cancer and the moderate risk genes. And this sort of emergence of these less penetrant but more common SNPs, which there may be hundreds of, are really influencing everyone. It, it, it's really a fascinating area yeah. to me. And, and I believe this sort of started around 2005 when SNPs for breast cancer started to really hit the scene. And in the clinic, we have our high, high risk patients, you know, the patients with a greater than five-fold increased risk for the development of breast cancer, you know, they're more likely than not in general to get breast cancer. And then we have our moderate risk patients. Uh, they may have mutations in moderate risk genes. They may have compelling family history, or they may have atypical hyperplasia. And then we have what we call average risk patients, mm -hmm. because up until now, we have not had the ability to identify low risk patients. So to me, I'd like to start there in yeah. clinic, you know, average risk, quote unquote, patients with no identifiable risk factors may be able to use the polygenic risk score to make clinical decisions about the type and frequency of their screening, screening in their 40s, their anxiety over breast cancer in general. I think that it can really help with that group. If you look at the high-risk group, the polygenic risk score can further substratify patients who have highly penetrant gene mutations into different levels of risk, but in general, it's still high. And mm -hmm, yeah. it's hard to, to know if that's going to help those patients make clinical decisions. And when I say make clinical decisions in that group, it's, it's typically regarding risk-reducing surgery. Yeah. But I think where we might see a lot of the benefit in breast clinic is with moderate risk genes and patients at moderate risk because mm -hmm. the, the polygenic risk score can really substratify those patients into categories where they may actually lean more toward chemopreventive medication, mm -hmm. lean more toward enhanced surveillance with contrast-enhanced breast MRI, or away from those things. And in patients with, say, a moderate risk gene and a very compelling family history, with a polygenic risk score that's very high, those patients may even begin a discussion about risk-reducing mastectomy. So I honestly feel like it's going to be helpful for all groups, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's really exciting. And it does seem like from the research that's emerging on the moderate risk gene group uh, that, yeah, you can really understand who is going to be in the higher risk versus the lower risk. These scores are being also uh, combined with family history-based tools and uh, clinical data to kind of give more of a complete risk picture for the patient that includes, you know, all that polygenic risk component, knowing if they're carrying like a BRCA1 or 2 or some of the moderate risk genes like ATM and CHECK2 
and then uh, it brings in also the clinical uh, factors and the person's uh, family history. So we're, we're starting to really make amazing precision tools to understand uh, people's risk for breast cancer. So it's an exciting time. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, you can almost view the polygenic risk score as a risk factor, in a sense, and, and together with other traditional risk factors and breast density, uh, mm -hmm. it's emerging as a, you know, a previously unappreciated critical factor in determining risk. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I agree with you. I mean, the, the high-risk genes, uh, we'll, we'll see ultimately, you know, how this plays out. There's been, geez, probably at least four studies or so in the last six months that have come out on looking at BRCA1 and 2 and how they're modified uh, by polygenic risk scores. But, you know, even people, it seems, with the most favorable polygenic risk scores in most of those studies uh, still have a 50% lifetime risk for breast cancer, yeah. as you brought up. So it's going to be hard to know how that ultimately has changed. I was involved in some recent research where, you know, even looking at ovarian cancer risk with some of these uh, polygenic risk SNPs, again, even, even in a BRCA2 carrier woman, didn't seem like the absolute risk for ovarian cancer was appreciably below 10% lifetime, which would still argue that, yeah, you'd probably still want to be on the safe side and, and uh, go with a risk-reducing salpingophorectomy or, you know, uh, hopefully in the future, you know, some other method to reduce that individual's uh, risk for ovarian cancer. Uh, I, I would assume the same is going to be for some of our high-penetrant Lynch syndrome genes and things like, you know, APC, like familial adenomatous polyposis, things are in Lee-Fermini syndrome. Some of the things that are just very high risk are probably going to just ultimately stay very high risk. But, you know, we'll see how a lot of the research actually is yet to be done on half the things I just, <laughs> you know, said. So we'll see how it shapes up. But yes, the moderate risk genes like the, the CHECK 2s and the ATMs, <clears throat> you know, PALB2, uh, for breast cancer, probably, you know, the Lynch syndrome moderate genes like MSH6 and PMS2. I think we have a lot to do and uh, it's going to be an exciting time. And uh, I think we'll be able to better understand people's risks, you know, for breast cancer and in the Lynch syndrome cases for colon cancer. But, you know, it may cross over cancers where some, you know, MSH6 mutation carriers have been looked at a lot as, you know, do they have a risk for breast cancer, even though they have kind of a colon cancer predisposing syndrome? Uh, and it may be that some of those people with high polygenic risk scores for breast cancer, you know, <laughs> end up having a higher risk for breast cancer, even though they have a, a lower penetrant form of uh, Lynch syndrome. So as people can understand from our discussion, it's making our field very complex. Oh, <laughs> uh, but, that's for sure. But that's, I, I uh, embrace it truthfully. And, I do uh, too. Yeah, I mean, it may be that one day we're just providing your risk for breast cancer is this, your risk for colon cancer is this, and we're saying, you know, your breast cancer risk is based off of this polygenic risk score, these clinical factors, you know, this gene mutation, you know, whatever it may be to kind of ultimately get to personalized risk for individualized cancer. Uh, management for everyone. So that would be a really yeah, uh, cool outcome everyone. of all this. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Well, and even amongst the highest risk patients, I really think that perhaps knowing just how high their risk mm -hmm. might be would help to validate these incredibly difficult decisions that they're faced with making regarding yeah. risk-reducing surgeries. That takes a lot of courage, period, to mm -hmm. even contemplate those kinds of surgeries. And if 
we could validate that their risk was extremely high, I, I think psychologically that would help. So mm -hmm. it really helps in, in all realms. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how, um, yeah, all of it uh, just plays out over time. So excited yeah. to see how the, what the, what the future holds for all of this. You know, where would you like to, to see all of this go eventually? Do you think uh, this should be part of everybody's cancer risk assessment at <laughs> some point in time? Or, you know, what, where would you see this all going? Well, one of the first areas that I think it might be most useful in, as we've both alluded to, is sort of further stratifying that moderate risk group. We will tell a woman with a moderate risk genetic mutation, you have up to a 30% lifetime risk of getting breast cancer, with average in this country being about 12 to 13%. But studies have shown that that risk may be in the single digits or it yeah. may be greater than 50%. And I really think that that will help women make decisions about risk management. And there's also evidence that in women who have breast cancer, the polygenic risk score may help to predict the risk of them getting a cancer on the other side, which can mm -hmm. help with surgical decision making making. So, yeah. you know, where would I like to see this go over time? I, I think it's really, it's really interesting because breast awareness used to be examine yourself and get a mammogram. Then yeah. we added on know your family history and report mm -hmm. it to your healthcare provider. Then we added on know your breast density and, and what kind of screening is appropriate for you. And, and now we're adding and no. what's your polygenic risk right. for like? All these complex <laughs> genetics. Yeah. So oh, it's really, yeah, it's it's interesting. It is. I mean, I worry that we don't have as much information about women of mm -hmm. color and non-white populations, and I really worry that this can widen the gap of disparities in care because we just don't have enough information about SNPs in women of color mm -hmm. to offer further stratification at this time. And so that's a concern. And, you know, and, and I wonder what the cost is going to be to this type of technology, but, but I think it's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I think, uh, you know, hopefully over the next year or two years, I mean, we really start making some headway and, uh, you know, expanding this to all ancestries and, you know, for the listeners on the line, I mean, a lot of these polygenic risk scores in general, you know, a lot were based on European cohorts of mm. white women. And, you know, so yeah, we just have a lot of work to do uh, in particular. The other thought I had is hopefully over time, in addition just to knowing overall risk, that we'll be able to use these uh, polygenic risk scores to even know, you know, maybe we could even time when people need screening right. or when they right. choose different surgeries and things. And as I alluded to before, I mean, this, these go well beyond thinking about breast cancer. I mean, you know, there's uh, polygenic risk scores being developed for, you know, and if every type of cancer for the most mm -hmm. part, I mean, for sure, every major type of cancer from, you know, ovarian to lung to colon to everything in, in between uh, that we can, you know, get a polygenic risk score on and uh, that we have genome-wide association data on. So uh, I expect this field just to continue to, to move forward. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, oh, really thank you so much. giving us your viewpoint of, of all this. And, you know, do you use it, uh, you know, routinely in clinic? So at the Cleveland Clinic, 
uh, our genetic counselors are the only people who order genetic testing. So I'm not actually able to order it myself. The patients undergo pre-test counseling and the test is chosen in a shared decision-making mm -hmm. environment by the counselor and the patient. So I do receive scores when it's been decided to order them. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, patients, I believe, really want this information. As evidenced by the cascade of ordering of direct-to-consumer tests, patients want to know about this stuff. And sometimes, even when things aren't well validated, they want to know the information sooner rather than later. These tests have good validation and will be further validated as we go forward, you know, in combination with breast density and traditional risk factor models. And I think it's information that patients want and it's information that helps them to make decisions. Yeah, that's great. So you, you've been having a pretty positive patient uh, response to all this. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's great. Definitely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good. Well, very exciting. Uh, we have a, a lot to learn as uh, our listeners <laughs> can gather <laughs> from, from this podcast, for sure. Probably one of the more mind-blowing podcasts uh, that we've gone over just because the field is moving so fast and you can see all the various applications of, of this and really, um, you know, it affects every woman and we wanted to uh, essentially be part of hopefully every woman's care over time. Well, great. Well, thank you, Dr. Peterson. I really appreciate you coming on. You're a great friend and uh, look forward to doing some of this polygenic research, hopefully over the years with you. Yes, you too. And, and thank you for the work and the research that you're doing in this field. Yeah, thank you.